Hi everyone, welcome to episode 41 of the Switch Focus podcast. That's right, we are well past our 30s into our raging 40s, I think is the is the, the phrase. Either way, we're in our fun 40s. And with me this week is just Andrew Brown. How's it going, Andrew? Just me? What are we going to do? Uh, we're going to have a slightly condensed uh, show schedule. So as seeing as how we are down one host, Andy is having a great time in Adelaide at Avcon. Um, hope you're enjoying yourself, Andy, when you listen to this. Uh, so it's just Andrew and myself today. So we will have a slightly condensed show schedule. <laughs> I don't so think what so. what we've decided to do. <laughs> I think this is going to be a good hour long episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to, um hone our focus on a smaller number of topics that Andrew and I are going to talk more in depth on this week. So just so you guys know, we're still going to give you our rundown on what we know about the latest Switch news and our usual Super Smash Bros. Nintendo Switch prediction segment, but we're going to do a bit of a deeper dive into two games that we played this week, and we will discuss that after the break. So we've got two particular items of note this week. Two seems to be our magic number. We're going to start off with the news about Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. So we now know that there are Breath of the Wild skins for the Master Cycle and for good old pal Link. And also that we're going to get Sheikah Tech themed wheels and gliders for all the carts. So I haven't played MK8D in quite a while. I don't know if Andrew's played it recently. No. <laughs> but this seems like good news. Yeah, Nintendo seems intent on completely updating Link's appearance to using the Champion's Tunic from Breath of the Wild, and I'm I'm all for it. I think it's a great new look for him. I think that green tunic thing, he'd been wearing that for way too long. Breath of the Wild was all-new Link on an all-new system in an all-new Zelda game, and I, I really take heart that they seem to be embracing this new philosophy of The Legend of Zelda as embodied by Link's new appearance. Yeah, no, I think so too. I think it's. I think we kind of figured it was heading in that direction when we saw how he looked in the Smash previews and whatnot. And so I think we can see that Nintendo is wholeheartedly adopting a, a newer, uh, thicker Link. If you guys like the look of the Shiga Tech in Breath of the Wild, which I clearly do and definitely do, and I mean, I think Andrew's right. I think it just looks like it was about time for a cosmetic overhaul. We're done with the Tinkerbell-esque outfits <laughs> for Link now. I like his more mature look. Yeah. Um, and it's good that Nintendo's actually been able to update a character's dated appearance um, and not actually piss off anyone. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I, I never really liked the green tunic look. I just, it had been around for so long, I'd internalized it and just never really talked yeah. about it before anymore. But... I am a much bigger fan of the Champion's Tunic. I'm all for updating it and making that the new appearance and as many Link appearances as they can get away with. Yeah, I agree. Link certainly has some pretty racy outfits in Breath of the Wild. I don't think we'll see those in Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, but there's always hope on the horizon for Smash. So uh, stay tuned for more Nintendo cosmetic changes to some well-known characters. I'm sure it's just a much-needed appearance update, but still, I have hope. Maybe next they'll remake the Ice Climbers? Question <laughs> mark? We can only pray and see. In other, I guess, perhaps more important or I guess a larger news segment this week, 
we know that there's been an update to Enter the Gungeon, and it's called, unsurprisingly, the Gungeons and Dragons update. So I have not played a lot of Enter the Gungeon. Um, I know that Andrew's played more than I have. Andrew, tell us what you know about this Gungeons and Dragons update. Well, if you never played Enter the Gungeon, it's a procedurally generated, like top-down shooter roguelite, not unlike Binding of Isaac, but there's a lot more emphasis on bullet hell and dodging and dodge rolling is a big mechanic in the game. And there's a lot of guns in it that you got to find. That's mostly what you're doing. It's it's probably the most gun obsessed game this side of Borderlands. <laughs> and this update for the system has been. In the works for about a year and a half, I think. Uh, it was supposed to launch alongside the Switch version of the game, but it's taken them this long to actually get it done. And it sounds like it overhauls a lot of things that people have been criticizing the game for since its launch, particularly in terms of difficulty and pacing. Now, a lot of these improvements are actually going to be invisible to Switch players because they've actually been in the Switch version of the game since the start. So the big news on this update is actually that it's putting a lot of the quality of life improvements from the Switch version onto other platforms, if you happen to be playing it on those. But it also adds uh, new bosses, new guns, and a lot of new synergies for items. Uh, and Enter the Gungeon, as I we are recording this, is on sale on the eShop for a very good price, and it's a very good game, so I would definitely jump on it because now is the perfect time to get into it if you haven't already. So now that you've heard from us about the latest Switch news, let's move into the games that we played this week. Okay, so as you already know, Andy is away, so Andrew and I have been busy preparing an in-depth dive into the games that we've played this week. The real jewel, I suppose, is going to be our talk on Octopath Traveler, but another great game that we've both sunk our teeth into this week is Hand of Fate 2. For those who don't know, Hand of Fate 2 is developed by an Australian studio, Woo! and it kind of combines... I guess random random generation with luck and with D and D type sort of playing ethos. So we're going to go through the various mechanics available to you in the game, how the game works in general, and also the different game modes that are available. So why don't we first start with a summary of what the game throws you in its first couple of minutes? So give us a bit of a rundown, Andrew. Well, you begin the game as kind of this unidentified player character, and you don't really know much about them when you're starting, but that's because the entire game is actually reliving the history of their life up until the point that the game begins through the form of this card game that this other passenger in a carriage who's called the dealer wants to play with you and he's a very mysterious character he's wearing a mask over his face you can clearly see that he's got some kind of scarring or some kind of disease going off one side of his body if you're like me and haven't played hand of fate one you don't really know what his deal is so <laughs> but the game that he wants to play with you is basically a role-playing game uh, where he will put out a lot of cards on the table in front of you, and each card represents a different occurrence in that chapter of your character's life, and you could be doing different scenarios. Uh, I've only played like a third of what's in the game so far. There's scenarios where like you'll be helping a farmer to escape from an army of the undead that his necromancer lover has sent after him. There's another chapter where you are in a city that's being attacked by the local 
evil empire and you're trying to save the citizens because the citizens are being wiped out because they've got this blight that is affecting them and just different things like that and it's all played out through these cards that you navigate on a tabletop that are laid out like a map and when you get to the end of the map then you'll begin the next level of that particular chapter and usually there's about three of them in there and really everything that you do in this game is determined by these cards because what equipment you have is determined determined by cards uh your companion that you have with you is represented by a card i think if they tried hard at it they could actually adapt this game to be an actual tabletop game with one big exception and that is the combat mm. because when you do get into a fight in this game which it doesn't happen all that often it's not the main focus but you do get into quite a few fights in each chapter uh you actually drop down into the game world itself and you actually finally get to see the area you're walking around in rather than just imagining it as an abstract map of cards and you actually fight some monsters and it all plays out like uh, an arkham brawling and if you don't know what arkham brawling is it's all based off of rocksteady's arkham asylum series which if you haven't played it it's amazing make time in your life for it where you'll be surrounded, you'll have your one character, and you'll be surrounded by half dozen, maybe even a dozen other enemies, and you might feel outnumbered, but you can definitely take them on, because there's a very smart counter system built into Arkham Brawling that lets you block and counter pretty much anything that's thrown your way. I love Arkham Brawling, I'll play any game with Arkham Brawling, and it, it, it's yet to be done poorly, is my opinion. I think this is probably one of the weaker iterations of Arkham Brawling I've ever seen, it's just, it doesn't feel very responsive compared to the core Arkham series, but it's perfectly functional. It gets the job done. Yeah. Um, so in terms of, I guess, just thinking about the the combat and the other elements that make up Hand of Fate 2, one of my personal favorite parts of, of Hand of Fate, besides the Arkham Brawling, which I find great if you're not someone that plays a whole heap of games with this mechanic, like I have to stress how easy it is to pick up how things work and in this game combat wise like things sort of flash in a direction where they're about to hit you in intuitively you block and use a directional button in that direction and that does the job like there's not it's not rocket science fighting this game which makes sense because fighting is not is not the core as andrew was saying what i found the most interesting is the fact that while there is definitely a huge element of luck and dice rolling the player character actually gets given the ability to impact the kind of encounters that they may come up against in each sort of mini chapter, story chapter slash story arc. So how the game works with its card deck is every time you've kind of finished your little adventure or your self-contained arc, you will receive more cards that lead to either more encounters, encountering new NPCs or new items. Every time you start a new adventure, you can actually stack your own deck with things for you to expect in the next bit. So there will always be stuff that's new to you in the next adventure arc, new cards from the dealer, but you can also stack your own deck with stuff that you might find useful or encounters that you want to see the next step of. So you can stack your card with, uh, for example, your NPC companions, next chapter in their adventure to see where things go. You can stack your deck with weapons that you know are going to be very useful to you or that you think may be useful to you. You can even stack your deck with events that have a chance to bring you things like extra food, weaponry, extra armor, or to encounter certain NPCs in particular because you have a certain thing that you want to get from them. So while there is a random element and there is definitely a huge dice rolling luck element to this game, you are not completely out of control. 
the dealer is the one dealing the cards, but you can stack the deck somewhat and make sure that you temper any losses that the game's RNG might throw at you. So I find that interesting as well. Like, do you want to actually have more encounters that are difficult that may have a higher payoff, or do you want to play it safe, have kind of easy non-combat encounters, and try and stack the deck with weapons and useful items that will help you in the last boss fight? So I find that payoff very interesting. I'm not sure how you feel about that one, Andrew. Now, I really like the ability to impact what you're bringing to the game. It's kind of like knowing in advance in a Magic the Gathering game what deck your opponent is going to be using. So that way you can actually Mm. build your deck to fight against them. And as for the chance in the skill games, you even have a lot of ability to impact how those go as well, even though they might feel very stacked against you. Like, uh, this game has a lot of RNG in it, but it actually makes you interact with that RNG rather than just deciding for you whether you've won or lost. A lot of determinations, we would say, are determined by a dice roll. We might be figurative about that when we're talking about another game. In Hand of Fate 2, you literally roll dice to determine many <laughs> actions. And like if you even have the right companion with you, if you've lost your dice roll, he'll offer you another dice, another die that you can actually roll that will maybe get you that extra one die roll that you need to get over to your goal. You can do that many, many times in a chapter because your little companion cheats, they actually refresh in three turns, which is fairly quick. So you are given many, many opportunities to basically cheat back against the game as it tries to cheat you. Uh, I really appreciate it for that. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that's very unusual in terms of games that rely very heavily on RNG. So I'm finding that aspect really interesting. And another thing that I think is quite interesting, if maybe unexplored, if you've worked through the story, and I definitely recommend working through the story before you try this, um, I think that the endless mode is is something that's very interesting and something that potentially adds a lot more depth to the game mm-hmm. than just your regular campaign. So I don't know if you have much experience with the endless mode, Andrew. Have you played it yet, or...? Well, the Endless Mode gathers, like, literally everything you've unlocked together, and except for your companion. You can only pick one companion at the very start. Everything else is everything you've unlocked and mass. so I am deliberately delaying doing the Endless Mode until I've beaten all the core chapters, so I have not necessarily everything unlocked, but most everything unlocked, and anything else I can just unlock by playing the Endless Mode. Yeah, so um, for those that are curious, I won't spoil anything because obviously, as Andrew said, it really relies on you having played the rest of the game. And as we've just (laughs) tried to stress as much as possible, please unlock as much as you can before you even try this. Um, Endless Mode is basically a test of endurance in a very literal sense. So in your regular chapters, while you may be given the chance to pick up more food, um, refresh your armor, get new armor, get new weapons and whatnot... Endless mode is basically you working against the clock. So if you fail an event in the in the regular story arcs, that may have narrative consequences. Like you may get gold stolen from you by some thieves because you are unlucky. You might get your food stolen from you because you are unlucky or just plain ignorant to the stuff around you. That's normal. That will happen. The game kind of often has a way of balancing it out. In endless mode, however, every time you fail an event, basically wear and tear the passage of time plus your failings will strip you of basically the gear that's valuable to you. And then your armor will be rendered pretty useless quite quickly because soon it becomes a durability question. So endless mode is basically how long and how hard you can go while being confronted with enemies that grow in strength as you progress. 
So it is incredibly, incredibly difficult. If you don't have the nuances down from the regular game, you're going to find Endless Mode pretty impossible. But what it has the potential to, to do while you play it is as you're kind of faced with this ticking clock of the, of the game mode, you actually unlock new items, new artifacts, new encounters, and new customization options that the game throws at you randomly during this time to help you through it. So it is very much about scraping through by your teeth and there's, I believe, in other on other releases, not maybe not on the Steam one, but there's actually like a leaderboard for the endless mode. It's a way of, I guess, testing your strength in the game mode once you've really, really beaten Hands of Fate 2's main narrative. So if you like a challenge and you think that you've dealt succinctly with Hand of Fate 2's narrative, then I reckon you should try it endless mode. It looks really difficult. I've played a little bit of it when I've played Hand of Fate 2 on a different console. <laughs> Barely scraped through it, but honestly, it is really fun once you grasp the mechanics of the game. So I think as a game, Hand of Fate 2 gives you a lot of replayability, gives you a lot of customization options. And I think the random element itself, while that usually annoys me if it's not a roguelike situation, I'm really, really enjoying the curveballs that this game throws me and gives me the ability to throw back. So yeah, I highly recommend it. If there's anything I've missed out on, Andrew, that you really enjoy, now is the chance to pop in. Well, what I appreciate the Endless Mode existing for is I think it provides more of an opportunity to get some things done that maybe the main campaigns don't because I think that would encourage grinding because there are some campaigns that are very specific about the things that you want to be doing in it. So certain Mm. campaigns really emphasize that maybe this is where you want to go to do this particular card when you're trying to upgrade it and get it to the next tier on that card unlock. Maybe that's what you want to do, but I think that would also result in a situation where you're continually playing the same challenge over and over and over and over, and that can get a little grating, especially when you are continually failing to get the upgrade that you're trying to get. Like One of the card upgrades that I'm trying to work out uh, involves a burning building. I've run into this card in almost every campaign I've done so far where you will find a burning building somewhere on the map and the people outside are like, please, my daughter, my son, my husband, they're all inside. And in order to upgrade the card, you have to successfully save all three of them, which requires a very difficult Mm -hmm. timing activity on this spinning wheel. Uh, I've gotten two out of three. I've yet to get three out of three. And I'm worried that without the endless mode, I would get fed up with the game before I would get all those upgrades done. But I think just having the endless mode and just seeing what it throws at me next and, you know, getting those upgrades... Just as I'm just playing the endless mode, just casually, just for fun, I think I am feeling more like I'm making progress without forcing myself to make progress. I appreciate it for that. Right, yeah, I see what you mean. And um, I know on the other consoles, uh, there's no reason why it should be different here, but I just haven't touched it enough on the Switch. The devs have said that endless mode is basically future-proof, so any expansions or updates to the game in the future will be added to the endless mode. So none have been announced yet, but when that does happen, I think it's good to good to see that they're essentially looking looking to the future of the game and looking to add new content. And if you're someone that cares about hours and money's worth, then that might be something that pushes you over the edge to want to get this game if you're unsure about the entertainment value. But honestly, if you're looking for something that's different from what we've seen so far on the Switch's eShop in terms of the mechanics that it combines and the storytelling that it enables you as a player to have both control and a wild lack of control over, then I highly recommend picking up Hand of Fate 2. 
I know I have a soft spot for it because it's an Australian developed game, but nevertheless, I think it's a great buy. I'm sure Andrew feels that way as well. And yeah, I can't stress enough. Support small developers. <laughs> All right. So apart from Hand of Fate 2, you may have seen Andrew and myself tweeting about it this week. We have also played dun 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 Octopath Traveler. So we cracked into this last week as a trio, sort of briefly laying out what we thought about the overarching narrative, the mechanics, all the stuff that basically you guys need to know if, or what we thought you'd need to know if you were thinking about picking up the game. So this week, with One Man Down, we thought we'd go a little bit more in depth. Obviously, we're going to have a couple of spoilers. If you do want to keep listening, these are minor spoilers I have to stress because we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into chapter one and how we feel about these characters, their backstories, the mechanics, and basically how everything all fits together in one eight-piece, eight-sized, eight-sided jigsaw. You guys get my drift. Minor spoilers here, obviously. You can choose to listen on um, or skip to the end, just switch predictions, not a problem. But if you are with us and you have played Octopath Traveler and you are very, very curious about what we think, or maybe just want to hear what our thoughts are about the first chapters of all the characters, then please listen on. So what we're going to do, I think, is we're going to go through the characters one by one, briefly explore, I suppose, the narrative themes that pop up in their first chapter, um, what makes them so striking or what makes them perhaps not so striking, what our thoughts are on the general direction of the character towards the conclusion of that chapter, and I guess how they fit into the party and into the bigger scheme of the game as we know it from chapter one. Not in any particular alphabetical um, or difficulty order, um, although we may comment on things like difficulty and whatnot as we go through it. We are going to start with a personal favorite of Andrew's and mine. We're going to start with Cyrus. Andrew, (laughs) Cyrus is your boy. (laughs) Let's get this thing started. Cyrus was the character I decided to start with. I somehow got the impression in the build-up to this game that it wasn't going to have proper magic in it, where what magic did exist was going to be like, you know, maybe technical in nature, but it was going to be focused more on physical combat. Then I started reading about the characters last month in the lead-up to release, and I found out Cyrus is basically a black mage. He's a scholar, he's a college professor, and he's actually a history teacher, yet for some reason he has black magic, so I don't know how one of those things leads to the other, but that's how the game works. But I'm really happy that I went with him because his black magic spells are just amazing. Almost every fight I do ends with him just nuking the enemy with a max boosted spell and just wiping everybody out on the opposing side in a single move. It's really satisfying every time it happens. But more importantly is Cyrus's special abilities, which let him find out enemy weak points just by looking at them and it really speeds up how quickly you can reveal them and removes a lot of the guesswork from the game in terms of attacking enemies with something just to see if it's going to reduce their break meter or not and also he has the scrutinize ability where he can basically walk up to somebody and determine things about them just by having a short conversation with them and these can lead to things like getting a discount at the inn where like literally every inn i have accessed in the game so far i can sleep there for free which is pretty great Uh, or adding new weapons to the item shop or increasing the percentage chance 
that they're going to work of the other path actions on the other characters. So I think if you're going to start with a character, Cyrus or his counterpart, Alfin, would probably be the way to go for that reason alone. Yeah, so as you can see, Cyrus clearly incredibly mechanically useful, but I found the the the, the story, I guess, that gets painted of of Cyrus's initial hometown very interesting. Yes, definitely. Just the the way that 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 the academic structure seems to function, it looks like a very research heavy university where professors basically have to compete for tenure based on the strength of their research. You see this very early on, I think, through the use of um, supporting foil characters, like another professor who is really struggling to get funding, um, and basically the whole town thinks he's a joke because he can't get funding for his specialized magic research. To the point that he's holed up in a cave, which is the first dungeon. <laughs> yes, exactly. So quite quite literally, this man is starving to death because of failure to succeed academically. And I think it's quite interesting to see as well the relationships between the institutions like the state and its nobility and this research facility that Cyrus seems to teach at. So I think Sasha's story introduces a lot of, I guess, familiar real-world elements that we recognize, like how a lot of universities work with their tenure system. Obviously not a slight on any university here, but let's be real about um, the tough life that academia is. A lot of these institutions may be very dependent on things like funding from other bodies within the government or bureaucracy or you know other bodies that actually have vested interest in the research produced by these facilities. So I find that the way Cyrus' story hints at these real-world elements uh, makes it more compelling than what I originally thought it was going to be. I admit I was not the biggest Cyrus fan when I first picked him up. He was kind of one of the last on my tour <laughs> through the Octopath Age. But when I did come into his world and I did see what he was, I guess, dealing with, and he gets some pretty hefty accusations leveled at him, which are also something which is not uncommon in this sort of field where he's in a position of power. I found that to be quite interesting too. So not only is he mechanically a cool character, but there are some bits of a story that I think have a very modern touch to them, or at least a modern relevance. So I highly recommend checking him out. He's a really easy starter for that particular reason, I believe, and a really useful one. As Andrew just mentioned, Cyrus has a very convenient counterpart who is uh, perhaps not as scrutinizing <laughs> as himself. That's Alfin, the apothecary. He's one of the characters that I picked up really early because it uh, just made geographical sense. I picked up Hanit and Ophelia very early on. So Alfin was kind of close by and I thought, eh, you know, why not? I'll just pop by and see what he's about. So I'd known that there was a rudimentary crafting element to his combat, but I hadn't actually considered what that would look like in practice. So I thought, eh, I'll just give it a shot. You you really come across good boy Alfin um, in his very idyllic village, which looks to be great at dairy farming and other, I guess, normal pursuits and during a medieval time. You kind of get the sense immediately that Alfin is a small town guy who wants to go out into the world. So he's got some things holding him back. Um, you've got the typical sort of family and friends considerations and a little bit of insight into, I guess, the motivating factor for why he wants to travel the world and why he is an apothecary. And I found that sort of stuff interesting uh, and a little bit cliched. Yeah. But what, what I do like about Alfin is, is the kind of duality of his character, which may not be so obvious initially, but I think kind of really sticks out to you later on. 
So Alfin, as an apothecary, his job is to heal people, right? That's basically what they do. He runs a shop in town where he heals people. You might think that someone like that has a pacifist nature. Uh, not at all the case. Alfin can use salves to heal people, so he functions as a healer. But he also has the ability to make toxins and explosives and debuffs, and he also wields a big axe. So this is a guy that probably has a big heart, but would basically go to violent ends if necessary to help out his friends and family. And that's kind of what Elfin does. So unlike Cyrus, who is definitely very much a glass cannon sorcerer type, Elfin has it in him to get up in the face of his enemies and bludgeon them or stab them, or pierce them, or slice them with his big woodcutting axe. And this is also reflected in his pretty, I would say, almost abnormally large health pool. Seriously, this guy has a huge health pool. If you keep him up to date with gear, he rivals even Harnet and Alberic, which is pretty impressive for a guy that I suppose you would consider uh, an off-roll healer, or a majority kind of healing, buffing type character. So for that reason, I think he's a very useful addition to your party. He can take a hell of a lot of hits. And instead of relying on, on I guess, intensive SP abilities, he can use nuts and various materials around that he finds to create AoE or single target effects for certain characters that can cure them of blindness, cure them of silence, heal them, and alternatively also afflict those statuses on enemies. So he is a very useful character to have early on if you think you're struggling a bit with just having Ophelia on your party or you have a party full of glass cannons. He can take some hits and he can definitely keep them alive. From the story side, though, what did you think of Elfin's story, Andrew? His is super basic uh, compared to the yeah. other characters <laughs> starting out. Like uh, He has this pretty clear motivation for his first chapter, but almost every other character has some overarching goal that's very clear to them and to the player at the end of their chapter. Alfin's overarching goal, I could not tell you what it is. Uh, <laughs> you get to the end of his first chapter, and he's like, well, I'm going to go now. And I'm like, okay, I guess we'll find out what's going to happen next in chapter two. Uh, but of all the characters that I've played so far, there's there's one character whose chapter I haven't done yet. Bad me, but I just I haven't had time yet this week. Except for maybe that one character... Alfin was the weakest character for me so far from a storytelling standpoint. As a like a, a functionary character in an RPG, he actually has a combined ability, which is the same thing as uh, Riku's power in Final Fantasy X, if that comparison means anything to anybody. <laughs> Just as a, a healer, I would rather use Ophelia. As a debuffer, I would rather use Primrose. So I don't see myself using Alfin much except as I'm required. But let me ask you something, because I know you played a lot more than I have. Is Alfin has mm -hmm. not the same ability as Cyrus. Cyrus has scrutinize. Uh, and yeah. Alfin has, uh, uh, his path ability is called inquire. And mm -hmm. near as I can tell, just by looking at it, is inquire is the same ability as scrutinize with none of the downsides. What is the downside to inquire? Because I don't see one. There isn't one. Okay. Because <laughs> well, like so basically Cyrus has scrutinize, which has a percent chance to fail. And if it fails five yeah. times in one town, you have to pay a fee before you can use any more path abilities in that town. Alfin 
can do the same thing, get the same rewards, you know, make the items appear on the overworld map, get the discounts at the inn, add new items to the weapon shop, but it doesn't have to deal with that percentage. So, you know, if not having Cyrus's godlike spellcasting ability is not a deal breaker for you, then Alfin is definitely the way to go if all you care about is his path action. Yeah, I have to admit that's how I've been using him. I have been filling my team with other characters generally wandering around, and if I go to a new place and I want to figure out what's what... I just throw someone out of my party and I bring an elf in to basically have a nice chat to everyone in town. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure what the rationale for that is. I've heard it described as Elfin is meant to have a more welcoming, maybe a more inquisitive and less, what's the word, maybe less intimidating aura around him. Mm. So whereas Cyrus might be trying to, I guess, probe too deep for a stranger, Elfin kind of approaches it like, oh hey, what's up, man? Just passing by. How's it going? Kind of thing. That's what I feel is a distinction, but obviously I don't know for sure. But I can say that there is literally no downside to using Inquire if you have Cyrus in and you you see that there's a 34% chance to scrutinize someone and get the information that you need. You know, if you don't care about continuity, I know some people might think it's a sin to swap characters out like that. You want to stick with your core team. If not, just swap him out. My <laughs> Elfin skill is great. He's cl- he's clearly a team player. Clearly, you know, moms, dads, peasants, goats—they all love him. You know, just just use his, his charming, bland, vanilla face for what it should be used for, which is inquiring about people's pastimes and getting you hidden items. So yeah, he is useful in that regard. So another character with a very useful path action that you can abuse very frequently, perhaps more frequently than should be possible, is Therion. So Therion, my sweet son, is a thief. And by thief, I mean probably the most archetypal, stereotypical thiefy thief in an RPG to ever exist. I say this because unless something is literally nailed down to the ground, he can probably steal it. And he can take literal candy from a literal baby. This is a thing he can do in this game. (laughs) There's nothing this man can't steal. I know you've used him too, Andrew. What are your thoughts about Therion? Therion's steal ability i think is a good example but not the best example of how the path actions in octopath traveler can be kind of ridiculous and just how broadly you're able to use them because almost everybody in town who has a speech bubble above them you can use a path action on them which means if you're going through town and you have therion in your party you are stealing probably a good two dozen items from everybody in town by the time you pass through it's a spree (laughs) it's absolutely ridiculous that you can even do this i think you know he's a thief so i guess that's okay but i think of all the characters he best represents kind of the dissonance that's going on between the game and the plot which i think has been the big conversation around octopath traveler since it launched was how the characters will all fight together in battle, but they don't really seem to exist in each other's stories. So it's it's hard to say why Ophelia the Cleric, uh, an agent of the Holy Flame, or whatever her religion is, would be tagging along with this thief, and he's robbing this person blind, and then Ophelia is guiding them on the path to enlightenment i just it it's very confusing (laughs) and really just the less you think about it the better so (laughs) 
but yeah. Therion's pretty useful in combat, though. He can use a dagger and he can use a sword, and pretty much anybody who can use two weapons is automatically more helpful to you than many of the other characters who can only use one weapon. Uh, his chapter, though, I think, except for Primrose's chapter, which we talked about in the demo a good... God, that was like 35 episodes ago now, I think. <laughs> uh, I, I would say he has one of the weakest chapters. Uh, it's very poorly written. It's filled with cliches. Like, he's a, he's a lone wolf who doesn't need a partner. He only works alone. I think all three of those lines exist at different points in his chapter. <laughs> And like, and the the big thing in his chapter is he's lured into this situation that gets him stuck off on the path that he follows in his next three chapters, and he gets blackmailed by this guy into doing it. But the guy picks a fight with him first, and I'm like, why am I even fighting you? You you drew me in here through this elaborate prank, and like you're like, well, you're the first person to pull this off. You must be the chosen one. I'm going to try and kill you now. It's, it was just, it's just video game nonsense. I, I could not take that chapter seriously at all. Yeah, I've got to agree with Andrew. While I enjoy my little kleptomaniac son, and I, I do really enjoy stealing things in game. I mean, it's incredibly useful. Some people have incredibly rare and expensive items just kind of hanging out on their bodies with a 85 and upwards percentage chance for you to succeed in a steal action. So, I mean, it's the world's there for the taking, quite literally. But I did find it quite amusing and quite funny that his story was, was so packed full of cliches. Uh, we know Alfin's story is quite bland and quite vanilla. Therios is just pretty much every single, I'm dark and edgy and I've had some kind of deep betrayal in my past from a mentor and a close friend that's made me the way I am. Like, it's, you know, completely hinted at. You get flashbacks in there, you know, of, like, a, a younger, happier Therion who is, you know, all about telling authority to, to rack off and about making his own way in the world. And you see, like, him blossoming into some kind of friendship with some other fellow kleptomaniac as well that's in the profession. Just things like that. These small touches that you know are leading to some sort of epic betrayal in his past, like we're thinking like Naruto Sasuke levels of betrayal. Or at least the flashbacks seem to hint at that. So his story treads very, very, very familiar ground. I said very three times because it is very, very, very familiar ground. Even down to being hoodwinked, even down to the items that he has been hoodwinked about. Just the connotations behind them set up a very stereotypical JRPG story. And I guess it's a very stereotypical JIPG-type villain for him to come up against at the conclusion of his chapters. But it's all very campy fun. I, I do find the cast society that he was operating within interesting on its own. In terms of the wider world, you know, we already know about Cyrus's relatively idyllic existence. But to actually see a cast system in action in Therion's story was quite interesting. Just the way that the NPCs, while we could critique Therion's story as shallow, which it really was in terms of emotional depth, I believe, I think that the way the game sold how people in different castes live um, was quite interesting. May not have been the best conclusion to how people from different castes or how a caste society really operates towards the end of the chapter. It was probably not the, not the most woke sort of iteration of this depiction. But I still found that examination itself quite interesting. Overall, Therion is a very mechanically useful character. He does have a ability called HP Thief, 
So he can steal HP, half an attack's worth of HP when he attacks twice with a particular weapon, but as a possibility that you acquire very early on for combat. So he is useful despite being a glass cannon and being a the, the thiefiest thief to ever thief. But um, he is, he's a funny one. <laughs> he also has an ability that lets him be a mana battery for another character where he can literally give his SP to, to Cyrus or to Ophelia. And also, you do have the ability to multi-class in this game. It takes a while, but you do get there. And the Apothecary class actually has an ability that lets you restore SP every time you do a basic attack. So if you spec correctly, you could actually give theory on that sp recovery ability for basic attacks and just have him constantly feeding sp to cyrus so he can keep casting the most powerful spells in the game just a pro tip throwing that out there yeah that is that is true he does have a lot of utility if you think about it he's not just a glass can dps and another character with a lot of utility is is tressa i know andrew has not covered tressa quite yet in his adventures so we'll keep it brief. I guess we won't go into the full specifics yet, seeing as how we only get, we're only going to get one perspective on it if we do a, a deep, deep dive. But I'm just going to summarize Tressa's story for you, which is, is also one of the mill JRPG. Think of her as Alfin 2.0. I find that the helpful comparison to make. She's got a, she's from a small, sleepy town, and she wants a bigger life. <laughs> that is really the, the kind of crux of Tressa's story. However, while Alfin seems prone to, to hacking at things to get the job done, she is not as reliant on physical strength. And I think that fits with her merchant archetype overall. So as you'll know, when you boot up the game, you kind of get to a screen where it's like, oh, Primrose the dancer, Ophelia the cleric, and Tressa is the merchant. So as you can surmise, that means that with Tressa in your party, you can buy things off NPCs. This is often at a cheaper rate than you get for the item normally. And you can also buy expensive, high-quality, rare items of NPCs as well. So much like Theron's ability, if they've got a speech bubble, they've got something you can probably buy. Sometimes it's junk. Well, most of the time it's junk. But a lot of times it is actually quite useful and probably quite crucial to some to some side quests. In terms of what Tressa brings to it mechanically, she is very useful. I mean, although with Therion, you get pretty much the same stuff for free. I can't really see an upside to using her instead of Therion, except obviously with Therion, you have a chance to fail because you're basically committing a crime. With her, if you're made of money and grinding out all the side quests, there's really nothing to lose from using her instead. You won't risk anything if you do use Tressa. So that's one thing that you might want to keep in mind. Well, and also, there are many items I've come across so far that have like a less than 5% chance to steal. So instead of spending hours trying to grind out that 3% chance and spending who knows how much money to do it, I would rather just come back with Tressa and just buy it off of them. Yeah, that's true. That's a good one as well. So, yeah, if, if you're not someone that wants to grind that, then she is she becomes more valuable than she already is. But, but combat-wise, she functions a little bit differently from the rest of the crew. So she can use magic, which is something that, again, I was surprised by because I, like Andrew, thought that magic would be... I guess not maybe not technical, but sort of something that's really only available to those who have learned it for a religious reason or an academic reason. I didn't kind of see it as like the purview of the masses kind of thing. And Tressa seems to be quite an ordinary character, but she's got access to, to what looks like wind element magic. She's a merchant, so she obviously needs to travel. <laughs> so I think of any job to 
makes sense that they would have control over the wind, it would be the merchant. That actually makes perfect sense to me. Well, that's fair. Tressa has wind magic. She can use a variety of weapons, two weapons again. So she's got the spear and the bow weapon. So that will give her really good sort of party crossover weapon skills with someone like Therion or Alfin or even Hana in your party. Because as Andrew said, the more weapon varieties they can wield, the better. And she also gets a SP restore skill mm. and skills that let her take money and items off enemies. I found the the sort of money stealing and item stealing mechanics not as useful. Enemies that usually use items initially when you pick people up in chapter one. And I've also found that in chapter one, if enemies do heal, it's through some sort of spell, not, not because they've eaten some kind of item. And things I have still have not been great. I mean, I've stolen nuts of enemies. I've stolen... Um, plums of enemies and you can get those a dime a dozen i think that she'll be useful once she starts subclassing but i think if you're going just off chapter one tressa's story is is all right it's it is about a small town girl with stars in her eyes who wants to do a little bit more with herself and doesn't really go much further than that and while she is resourceful and i i think that she's a great character she's an underdog character that is easy to love i i think mechanically and narratively um she's not one of the stories that's really captured me but a character that has, I think, come out a little bit more favorably on Andrew and I's receiving end is Ophelia. So I know Andrew has a soft spot for Ophelia because not only is she a great healer, her story is pretty interesting too. So why don't you just take it away and give us a little bit of insight into what grabs you about Ophelia in particular? Well, I think every character has a unique take on what their thing is really focused on. And I think Ophelia's is focused on family duty and duty to her religious organization. I think it was an interesting take on it. Uh, her chapter is actually super short. It doesn't take too long to get into her thing because it just it lays everything out in order. This is the situation. This is the thing that Ophelia has done to help her family, even though it's actually endangered her future in this religious organization that they're all a member of. And she's got to do this thing. And it's absolutely the thing that she's choosing to do to keep her family together. I think if there's any emotional beats in Octopath Traveler that are really going to pay off, I really hope it's Ophelia's because of all the relationships that were told in this game of the different characters... Hers was the only one that actually felt like a relationship of trying to keep everybody together rather than trying to create conflict between all these different relationships. But I was just immediately hooked by her goal and by her motivations for doing so. And also she's the resident staff chick. She is the woman with the staff who heals people. Every RPG has one. <laughs> and... I almost feel like she's got Princess Peach Syndrome because in Super Mario RPG, every party would have Princess Peach in it and every turn they would just use group hug. Uh, I, I kind of gotten to that point in this game too where almost every turn, at least in a boss fight with Ophelia, I'm just doing a heal all spell because it's cheap and it works really well. But I've just, I found her incredibly useful and I've, I'm just engaged with her story. Of everybody in this game who I want to know what happens next, Ophelia is probably at the top of the list. Yeah, I agree. When I first tried the demo with Ophelia, I have to admit, uh, when I booted up her story, it's not the kind of story I normally have a lot of time for. Not in the sense that 
I, I don't enjoy stories about religious organizations that might be corrupt um, from the inside. I didn't get the impression that this one was corrupt, so yeah. It was more just I had stereotyped her before I really played her, her chapter. Uh. I got into it thinking, oh, you know, Ophelia the good <laughs> girl. She's just an old cleric. Nothing cool's gonna happen. But I actually found myself quite emotionally captured by the story she was telling compared to, let's say, I don't know, Alfin and Tressa, whereby, well, you know, often the biggest conflict you find there is, I guess I gotta leave my, my town and look out for the world around me. <laughs> I think Ophelia was one of the few characters in their first chapter who establishes a very strong idea of what they really stand for, while the rest are kind of, you know, either focused on sort of a violent means, violent ends kind of trajectory. You can kind of tell very early on that Ophelia has a very established sense of self and that in a, in a game where, you know, we know that the characters past don't really interact in the narrative, I kind of wish that they did now because of, of the kind of dynamic that I think Ophelia would bring to a party that was very involved. So it does make me a little bit melancholy, or not melancholy per se, but it does make me uh, a little wistful about, I guess, what the game would be like if all the characters did have very heavy sort of inter-party dialogue or inter-party interactions. But I don't think that takes away at all from the strength of, from the strength alone of Ophelia's story. And I mean, just based on her conviction alone and the way that she treats people, I can see why people that might not be like-minded would flock to her. And I mean, her, her skill guide... While I haven't really seen it used to great effect yet in side quests, and it certainly isn't something that immediately benefits the party, I think it's, you know, obviously thematically strong. It makes sense, although the ease by which she seems to gain religious followers might be slightly unsettling. <laughs> but I'm just going to put that down to charisma for now. No, I'm, I'm finding her story interesting to follow, and I find her as a character, her motivations, easy to understand but not necessarily as sort of like the kind of hagney cliche that some of the other characters are. Combat-wise, though, I know, Andrew, you've been using her and getting a whole lot out of her. Yeah, she has light magic, which is mostly healing, but she also has some attack spells, which I've barely used, but there have been a few places where I've had to use them to break enemies, so I have them used them in that case. When I did Alfin's quest, I tried leaving Ophelia behind because Alfin also has healing abilities but when i got to the boss in alfin's chapter i immediately went back and grabbed ophelia because the boss was just doing so much damage to my entire party that alfin could not keep up that maybe if i had mm -hmm. used his combined ability to greater effect i might have done okay but i would rather have just grabbed ophelia and just cast the heal party spell over and over which is what i did and it worked just fine so i'm perfectly happy with that outcome Ophelia is super basic. We don't have to explain her for you to know how she works if you've played an RPG. She's exactly what you're expecting, <laughs> and it works well. So we're kind of winding down in terms of the characters that we've got left as part of our deep dive for Chapter 1. And after talking about Ophelia and how much she, she does bring to the party, we've got another character that does bring a lot to a party, but I think narratively may leave a lot to be desired. I know Andrew and I share the same thoughts on Primrose's narrative and themes. Others might not feel the same way, but she was a controversial character when the demo came out for a reason. And we're going to do a little bit of a dive into that and as just as well talk about, I guess, her place in the narrative and in the universe and the overarching stuff that gets dealt with with Primrose. So as you may 
already know from either having played the demo or read the buzz around it or if you've done any kind of googling whatsoever about Octopath Traveler, you've probably heard about Primrose. So Primrose is a dancer, well that's her background, she is a dancing girl, which is a very polite way of referring to her occupation and the circumstances by which she has to carry out that occupation in a kind of faraway desert oasis town where all manner of things happen. She's someone who's fallen upon some very hard times and the story, the way the story takes you to that conclusion and to to perhaps what a past used to be is not at all subtle. Hers is definitely a story of vengeance and revenge and a lot and a lot of bloodshed. Which is not in itself a, a problem, but I, I think Andrew and I both have had some concerns about the way that Primrose and her occupation and, and I guess the way the game portrays that sort of occupation and the way that the game deals with it thematically. Primrose as a character, as I mentioned before, a dancing girl, that is a sort of very, very loose term for someone who is providing a very provocative service. And as part of that provocative service, there is the pressure from her employer to perform often non-consensually other acts in a similar sphere that are not limited to dancing. So <laughs> the game does not deal with this subject matter in a particularly nuanced way, I don't think. I think there are ways to present dialogue around this kind of occupation without needing to denigrate it constantly in presentation and Primrose unfortunately is on the receiving end of a lot of denigration and degradation as a character. I myself felt like this is a character that you often see in fiction whereby you know a woman is not really interesting uh, unless she has to overcome some awful awful thing that is constantly happening to her and then you know people are allowed to finally see her as human. I think that kind of story grates on me, and that's the kind of story that I felt was coming from Primrose. I know Andrew had similar concerns about, about the things that are said to Primrose and the way that Primrose is viewed by the other characters in particular. Yeah, they said when they did the demo last year, which had Ulberic and Primrose's chapters in it, uh, that they were going to use the feedback from those demos to adjust the final version of the game. I, I don't know what feedback they used, what feedback they got, or how they adjusted things, but this seems letter for letter identical to the chapter one we played last year, which if you go back to that episode of Switch Focus Podcast, you will hear that Ginny and I said pretty much the same things that we're complaining about now. It uses sex work and human trafficking as a backdrop for Primrose's drama, but it doesn't have anything particularly interesting to say about either of those, except that the people who do it are evil and the people swept up in it are victims, and there's nothing to it besides that, which is, you know, broadly true, but is not a helpful place to have a conversation about what goes on in these things. Basically, they're using it for very cheap manufactured drama, and it's very obvious that that is what they're doing. Uh, I really hope that her chapter 2, 3, and 4 uh, improves on this as it gets away from this basically brothel town setting that chapter 1 takes place in, and she sets off on this quest for revenge against these men who killed her father. I really hope it reaches out in that direction and doesn't keep exploring this fetishization of squalor that chapter one does. I definitely think that that probably 
made it one of the weakest narratives for me. I know some people, or well, some people I think can conflate drama in a narrative with strength, just because I think Primrose's story has a lot of hooks, expected hooks as they are. That doesn't make it necessarily at all a very strong story if all it has to say about sex work and about the people that are caught up in it or choose to practice it is is completely two-dimensional and black and white. And I think we have tweeted about this perhaps individually. I know I have a couple of times. I think on this story of Primrose's in particular, depicting something is not the same as having a a productive or a good representation of it. Representing something doesn't mean portraying it positively. Then again, I think the game, by depicting it in this particular way with the particular acts and people that it associates the act with, it's more than unhelpful. But that is, sadly, again, one of the very many cliches that RPG games have in terms of sex work and women and men who profit or are affected by it. So if that is something that you are not comfortable with, then I would recommend not playing Primrose's story. It goes into some pretty dark places. Some really awful things are said. If if you find the subject matter uncomfortable or think that it might not be healthy for you to visit, then you're really not missing out on that much, if anything at all, by skipping it. So just so you know, of course, these stories aren't connected, so nothing really is crucial. This is a story that I feel completely comfortable saying, you know, it's okay to miss it if you think that this might affect you negatively in any way. You're not going to miss out if you don't play Primrose's bit. However, um, if you do have her in a party, she is pretty useful. She is the only real user of dark magic in Chapter 1, which makes her incredibly useful for a lot of enemies in that particular geographical area that she's located in with a couple of others that may be weak to dark magic. So she's a good pickup. She's also very good at debuffing enemies. She's got a skill which will let her cast a random effect on an enemy. Sometimes that beguiles them, sometimes it silences them, sometimes it really doesn't do anything at all. It's a bit of a lottery skill. But she's got other debuff skills and other buff skills for her party that make her very useful. I think as Andrew said earlier, he finds her more useful than Elfin in terms of buffing and debuffing which is a fair enough assumption to make. Her past skill, Allure, is very tied into her occupation as a dancer. It functions much like Ophelia's guide skill, whereby they join your party and and walk with you to a particular location until, I suppose, the Allure fades or you tell them to rack off. It has a chance to fail. So (laughs) I guess it's kind of like an Elfin versus Cyrus situation. If you want to be completely certain that someone's going to go where you want them to go, I would use Ophelia's guide. If you're happy to gamble or you think that the story demands that a particular person has to be coerced or convinced to go somewhere by virtue of Primrose's looks, then there are some instances whereby the game very blatantly advises that you use Allure. So then I would also keep that in mind as well. Otherwise, combat-wise, I can't fault her being there. She has an unusual mechanic. I, I do enjoy the dancer profession from a mechanical perspective. I really miss the dancers from Fire Emblem and how they functioned in the game with their skills and this feels very similar to that. But I I think it's hard for me to recommend in good conscience that, you know, you have to have her in a party because that means playing through the the story that they've crafted for her, which is, is really not that great. But there is an actual function to her path action in combat, other than like Cyrus and Alfin. 
So if you do have Ophelia and Primrose in your party, you actually can use both of their path actions in battle to bring two summoned NPCs into battle. So it's not necessarily a one or the other option between them. It's just if you're trying to get an NPC to a particular location, you're going to have an easier time of it with Ophelia. Another character that people have found slightly controversial, not for the same reason at all, (laughs) um, but by virtue of the uh, incredibly affected Middle English (laughs) accent slash voiceover, is Harnet. So Harnet is, I suppose, the resident ranger. And again, her story is packed full of tropes. She is a ranger, so she's got a pet um, who happens to be a, a rare snow leopard she lives in the woods, attuned, you know, or at one with animals and nature, packed full of really, really fake deep one-liners about the state of the world and how everything returns to the earth and how we are the earth and things like that. I started spontaneously singing the circle of life at one point during her chapter. Yeah, it was. it's, it's something. And I think that the, the part that makes her the most amusing character to play is if you have the English voiceovers turned on because, oh my gosh, that is a laugh in itself. It, um, it's not what Shakespeare sounds like. It, it's what people think Shakespeare sounds like in parodies. That's what this dialogue is like. Yeah, it, 100%. If, if, it's like if you're watching a high school production put on a Shakespeare play and everyone had really really affected accents that's what Hannah and her entire beast taming tribe would sound like from a story perspective it's not it's not the worst packed full of cliches as it is I I find her motivations very clear Mm -hmm. her actions understandable comprehensible she hasn't quite got the kind of lone wolf attitude that Therion has but you can tell that she's someone who has had to be independent so it might be a bit of a stretch to to wonder why she'd group herself in with other people, but she has a very, very strong instinct. I don't want to say pack instinct, but she has a very strong instinct for helping others and for helping others better themselves due to her status, I guess, as like a quasi-mental figure in her tribe. So I found it more plausible that she'd link up with the rest of the Seven than, let's say, why Therion would do it or, or why Alfin needed to do it for any particular reason at all. As a character, she is full of uh, unexplainable contradictions like the middle English accent and the bare bones living off the land in the woods idea and the relationship between beasts and man and why they all speak like that. These are things that I want answered eventually and I think the story does a good job of throwing me just enough curveballs and eccentricities that I want to know what happens next. So in that sense, I find Hanuk quite interesting. Mechanically, how do you find her, Andrew? Oh, mechanically, she has this, like, capture ability where you're in combat. She can capture a monster in battle and use it in a future battle, but there's only a limited number of times she can use it. Just the effort I have to go through of basically for this one particular character basically having to play Pokemon with her, whereas everybody else is just shredding things to pieces and just killing things left and right, especially with Cyrus around. (laughs) I just, I haven't really bothered to use that part of her abilities, but Lindy, which is the snow leopard she has, you can actually use Lindy as many times as you want, so it's not like her summon ability is completely forgotten. And she does have hunter abilities, which are these super powerful bow abilities, which I've gotten quite a bit of use out of in a few boss battles. So I've been pretty happy with Honey, but just in terms of utility, she's been getting outclassed a lot by other characters I have unlocked. 
Yeah, that's fair. I've used Hanit probably the most just because she was the very first one that I picked up on my on my playthrough of the game. And what I did was I tried to get one of every weapon type in my beast arsenal. I went out hunting specifically for one of each weapon type. <laughs> so early on, I found it very easy to, to break enemies because a lot of the beasts actually have double strike all abilities. So they can double strike entire parties uh, in the way that Lindy can with his sword attack. So I found Hanet sort of my default kind of boss busting person just because I had specifically used her beast capturing abilities in that particular way, which you can do. Or if you want to kind of do things from a more flavor perspective, you'll capture just beasts that maybe function like Lindy. I know you can capture beasts that appear to be sentient. Um, for example, I didn't just have bears in my arsenal. I captured enemies that were wielding weapons as well. And that, you know, has some kind of clothes on as well. So you can capture not just, I guess, woodland creatures, but also things that have, uh, I guess, more awareness or a functioning civilization. Things that might kind of straddle the line between human and beast can also be captured. That's probably a meta discussion to be had at a different time about what that says about Hanit's capture skill. But I found her incredibly useful if you do actually go out and hunt for monsters that you want. She can be incredibly vital because some of these monsters can use specific magic attacks as well. And if you play it right, she's basically all characters in one in terms of having different weapon types. And she is also, by virtue of her her profession, I think, incredibly tanky. She has a big health pool, kind of like Elfin. I think her and Olberic have comparable health pools in my experience. If they get up at the same level with the same stuff, they've got very comparable health pools. And like Andrew said, she's got huge variety in what she can do. She can bow attack, she can axe attack, she can even cast magic. And very useful magic as well that kind of pushes enemies to the back of a round. And in turn-based combat, that's always very valuable. So she's kind of my jack-of-all-trades character that I really enjoy using. Her party action, though. Did you get much use out of that, Andrew? Because I really didn't. Well, the path actions for Hanit and Ulbrich, which I think this is why we saved it for last are just kind of silly. The way the path actions work is a lot of the NPCs in town have these little speech bubbles over their heads, and whenever you see that, you can use almost all of your path actions on them, if not all of them. It depends upon the character. And what Hanit and Oberit can do is they can actually challenge these characters to a fight. And if they win that fight, then that character, for the rest of the time that you're in that town will be passed out on the ground with little unconscious stars floating over their heads. And sometimes you have to do this to a character to get them to stop harassing another character for a side quest, and that makes sense. Other times you'll do it to get an NPC to move out front of a door that they're standing in front of so you can go inside. There it mechanically makes sense, but it seems really unjustified doing something like that. Uh, and then there are the characters who are just kind of standing around or like a little old lady in a graveyard. And you're just like, what are you doing? You are a monster. <laughs> just this path action is the weirdest one in the game. I, I have so many conflicted feelings about it. I really don't like the way it's been implemented because it just makes... Hanit especially, but Oberic as well. Oberic at least has the courtesy of asking first before he beats the snot out of them. But 
then <laughs> none of the characters actually refuse Ulbrich either. So it's not really any different. I can't wrap my head around this mechanic. Just like Therian robbing everybody blind, just the less you think about it, the better off you're going to be. Because <laughs> this is a really awkward mechanic. Yeah, I, I am going to say, I think the worst time that I ever put this into play was when I was talking to someone and I was just kind of, it was like 2 a.m. in the morning, you know, I was trying to get my task of getting everyone in the village talked to and dealt with. And um, and I'd fumbled it and I ended up uh, beating up a poor orphan child <laughs> <laughs> with harness. And I just, you know, she was, you know, they were doing like one point of damage to me and I just thought, oh God, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in for a penny and for a pound. So I, you know, I thought, you know, well, all you can do is really use Hanit's monster skills when you're in Sabrina. So you can't actually, like, shoot anyone or hit anyone. You need to use your monster skills to do damage. So I thought, oh, you know, I'll put the orphan out of their misery. Uh, and Lynn had, like, a, Lindy had a massive crit of, like, over a thousand damage. <laughs> I just felt so bad. I was like, God, I probably killed this child. And then when you talk to the child after, they're lying there. And just, like, they're just, like, making a weak sound of pain and you're like oh no i'm a monster you thought stealing so, candy um, from them was bad <laughs> yeah i know i have just I've, I've probably ruined someone's ability to walk for the rest of their life thanks to what lindy did because i don't think the healthcare is that good if you're a villager living in poverty <laughs> like andrew said some of these path actions and the way that they used can make little to no narrative sense and and especially even less we consider that ophelia is right there probably thinking god how can i live with myself like helping these people that just beat up orphans on the street unless you think about that the better but um hanet is a very valuable character mechanically at least in my experience i've used her in that particular way and found her useful um she's not the world's largest damage dealer um not compared to cyrus she has very limited magical capabilities so you might not find her your style and the old english thing might really really great on you She's got a place in my heart and I'm keen to see where her story goes and to kind of maybe understand one day why they all speak like that. What possessed this tiny town in the middle of the woods in in some godforsaken place to all speak Old English? That is what I hope to find out when I finish Hanit's story. As Andrew mentioned, another character that we were saving for last, Lucky Last, is Olberic. Olberic is probably, I guess, the one of the foils to Hanit in that that they're very similar. They both have, I think, a very sort of headstrong mindset. But Olberic has a, a again a very ordinary JRPG esque origin story. You know, he's a good mm-hmm. dude. Andrew, do you want to talk a little bit more about Olberic? Yeah, Olberic kind of has a revenge story going where somewhere in his past, and you actually witness it, is a uh, a friend of his actually betrayed their leader. And Ulbrich has gone into exile. It's actually almost note for note the same plot line that Bosch has with his brother in Final Fantasy XII. But, you know, it worked well in Final <laughs> Fantasy XII. I thought that was one of the better character plot lines in that game. And I'm excited to see where it goes in this one. But, you know, he's super basic. He's basically living as kind of a ronin in this mountain village after he's been disgraced and just doing odd jobs being the local tough guy in town and earning the village's respect even though they don't really know who he is and then he gets this tip from this passing boss that comes through who is threatening the town that sends him off on this adventure it's really basic rpg stuff and he's a really basic rpg 
sword character. Like if Octopath Traveler was made 20 years ago and didn't have like all the modern flourishes of like choose your own adventure and open-ended nature and you can go anywhere you want etc 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 uh Ulrich would probably be the character they force you to start with in that game <laughs> but you know except for his challenge path action which again makes him seem like a bully uh I, i'm perfectly happy with Ulrich. i think he's going to be a mainstay of my party just for how useful he is in combat as a as a tank and a direct damage dealer yeah, I think Ulbrich is a very versatile character in terms of the dual roles that he has. He is a very stereotypical, well, might, might not be the wrong word, but he would be the that one generic male character that you get to start with in pretty much any other game, as Andrew was saying. He does his job well, it's not a difficult job, he can get hit by things, he can hit other things hard. He doesn't take a lot of brain power to play. I was quite surprised that I enjoyed his story as much as I did. Uh, maybe because I had kind of played it very shortly after Primroses, which left a very bad taste in my mouth. And this was actually the, the kind of thing I needed to sell me on, on I guess, the story again. N- none of these characters have particularly complicated origin stories, but I, I definitely think that Ophelia's and Olberic's made the most narrative sense to me. It provided the most background and sort of justified the personality and the actions of the characters as they are today. It is a very different take from Primrose's revenge story. I, I think with her, you the the game relies a lot on the inherent evilness it it portrays when it deals with themes of sex work to sort of be motivations for why she is the way she is. Alberic's story, while cliched, I think has a lot more of a human, believable element to it, as in it doesn't rely on that sort of cheap drama to actually bring you to the table emotionally. So I found myself enjoying what I thought would really kind of be a, a Master Chief rehash <laughs> in terms of character depth. I was thinking, you know, right, big guy with a sword who can hit things and, you know, he makes everyone want to duel him. I know how this goes, you know, a big guy with an alpha male ego. But no, I was very surprised, pleasantly, so by Oberic's contribution. And while I, I'm not a fan of the warrior play style, so I don't have him in my party unless I really need to or it's getting up to his chapter and I am trying to play everyone's chapters together as a loop so i get him in my party from time to time while he's not one of my mainstays i I am looking forward to his story as well along with ophelia and hannah it's probably the most because of how it's been dealt with yeah i think i think mechanically not difficult not as interesting as something like alfin i feel like alfin and tressa as characters are much more hands-on about or more strategic about how buffs and debuffs and how their innate individual skills have to be used. So I find the skill payoff more rewarding for those characters than for someone like Oberic and Harnett, who are a lot more straightforward, you know, see a thing, bash it with a thing it's weak against, see a thing and bash it some more. No, he's definitely grown on me. And that's been my surprise sleeper OP pick, is Oberic. <laughs> I think overall, between the characters, there is definitely a sense that they diverge so much individually that it's very hard to realistically loop the storylines together and give the party concrete narrative motivations for hanging out. I can kind of see now why they have really left it up to the player's imagination as to why, you know, Therion goes with Ophelia or why Primrose is is fine with with Cyrus or why Hanit is okay assimilating into modern society and somehow speaking a different dialect from everyone else is not at all a problem in her day-to-day interactions. 
So I, I can see how they've left it the way that they have, and they've left it up to us essentially to come up with the the inexplicable reasons why characters do what they do. But I'm not sure how you feel about that, Andrew. You're still kind of looking for some for something else to tie it together. I know you and I weren't too fussed about the storylines being divergent, but I know a lot of other people might have assumed that it was all one coherent combined story. Well, I think that was kind of how the the marketing was leaning in that direction. You know, leading up to the release of the game. So I think that's why some of the reviews that came out that disappointed so many people spoke so negatively about that aspect of the game. Because we have seen this thing, we've, we've seen this done before. I think one thing that Octopath Traveler does very well is all the characters have very individual stories. They all have very personal reasons for doing the things they're doing, except for Alfin. <laughs> That's where the conflict comes in, because Therian has a very specific reason for being on the quest he's on, and I would totally believe that Therian would focus only on that quest and wouldn't want to deal too much with a lot of interference with getting that done, even if he does legitimately need help with several parts of it. And Octopath Traveler doesn't even want to explore that. It's eight different stories told simultaneously, side by side, all wrapped up in an RPG where... They can join together these different archetypes into different parties. But the game itself and the story itself don't actually have anything much to do with each other, which really isn't that unusual for not just an RPG, but even a video game. That's why I'm not all that fussed about it. But we have seen it done successfully in the past, like Dragon Age Origins, I think is a really good example. Every character Mm -hmm. in that game has a very personal reason for why they are wrapped up in the adventure that this entire group is in, and there's friction between the characters, and if your Grey Warden main character actually does behave in certain ways, then certain characters will leave your party entirely and you no longer have access to them based on those decisions. Now... I'm sure the scenario design for Dragon Age Origins was a complete headache and a nightmare to work out, and maybe they just didn't have the time or didn't have the budget to do that in Octopath Traveler. Maybe they just didn't have the interest. That's perfectly fair. Uh, So I, I can understand why people would complain about Octopath Traveler being structured the way it is, but it's mechanically a good RPG, and it tells eight solidly told rpg stories it may at the end of it not be my favorite rpg ever but i'm perfectly happy to give it my time yeah i'm very much the same way i was fine with the whole idea of them not being kind of joined together i can't treat the way i treat my own DD campaign that i'm in right now a <laughs> band of adventurers meet in venture town are thrown together for some inexplicable reason but by chance or by the dm's hand and kind of have to work it out well, obviously in D and D, you 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 enact these interparty tensions, and you don't really get that opportunity in Octopath Traveler. I've been happy with what my imagination has given me so far, which includes very heated dialogue between Theron and Ophelia, and very interesting shenanigans in terms of Harnett getting to deal with the real world and a world that's not speaking Shakespearean English. So yeah, I mean, I'm happy with what the game has given me. I understand why people wanted more. But I think that the strength of Octopath Traveler really will begin to unfold as these individual stories unfold, because all on their own, these are all self-contained stories. And at least in the situation of Ophelia and with Alborek, I I can see incredible potential for where these are going to go. And even with Therion's as cliche as I can see the ending being, I'm 
I'm keen to see what comes next. So I, th- I think the more time people spend with the game and the more involved they become in these individualized crafted stories, the more the game will grow on them. I don't know everyone has the luxury of spending hours and hours and hours with this game, but that's what, that's what we're here for. <laughs> and I- I'm sure once Andy gets back as well, we'll have a chance to share more of our thoughts as we progress through this game together. Yeah, I hope our breakdown of Octopath Traveler Chapter 1 has been useful to you guys and gals out there. It definitely has been a chance for us to, to really think about what, what we like and what we dislike, or I guess how our experiences have diverged or kind of converged with different kinds of characters and different types of play styles that Andrew and myself have in particular. So I hope this was as cool for you as it was for us. And now we're going to return to our regularly scheduled programming of Super Smash Brothers predictions. Ready? Go! So we're going to do Andy's prediction first for our Super Smash Bros section because he's not here. He thinks that there are going to be community weekends that will kind of be like Splatfest. So I guess that means people will pick teams and will duel players that are on the other team in, in I guess, a 1v1 or a party brawl setting. I think that's, that's doable. And, and I think it would get a lot of use out of the Switch's online system as well to encourage multiplayer like this. What do you reckon, Andrew? The Splatfests have been a huge success, uh, not just in Splatoon 1, but also in Splatoon 2. I think this is an easy guess. I, for sure, they're going to do something like this. That also makes me question what meta systems they're going to have built on top of things, or if it's just going to be a community weekend get-together. But if there were some kind of unlockables in the game, or some kind of a system to improve stats in some way, I, I kind of hope not, because that always messes with the, the competitive metagame. But something like that built on top of it, the same way Splatfest has with the things you can earn from those events... I think that would be cool as well. And what was your prediction, Andrew, for this week? My prediction is Smash Brothers is going to have fatalities, which <laughs> which is to say that I don't think it's actually going to have fatalities, but I think there's going to be something added in where the winner of a match will get to recognize themselves in some way rather than just doing their victory pose while everybody else golf claps in the background i think they're gonna switch that up a bit so kind of like overwatch's play of the game yeah type yeah maybe that's a better way of putting it is play of the game yeah oh yeah no I, I, i can see that i think it'll be interesting if um when you play as a pokey trainer that there there's the potential for interactions with pokemon that you've actually captured because mm. um i know how in pokemon let's go um, that syncs up with Pokemon Go on the mobile, and you can transfer Pokemon from your Pokemon Go cache to Let's Go and alter your team. If that functionality is already established and up and running, um, I think it'd be a cool flavor thing to actually be able to transfer some members of your team from Pokemon Go to the actual Smash game when you're playing as a trainer. So that could be cool. Um, I don't know how they implement that balance-wise, because, <laughs> I don't know, what if you've got, like, <laughs> Mewtwo or something? Oh. And then you've got, and then that would, you know, you might as well just use regular Mewtwo in, in the actual, as an actual avatar. But um, logistics-wise, I don't know how that would work, but I think it would be a cool, you know, way to show that the whole system and everything is integrated. I mean, if they go into the effort with Let's Go, it would be a cool flavor thing. Poker Trainer isn't very popular anyway as a choice, but I think it would just be entertaining to see. 
I love Pokemon Trainer and Brawl. I'm ecstatic that Trainer is coming back. Well, there you go. At least Andrew will be happy to see something like that. <laughs> so yeah, that's my prediction. I'll go with that. So, now that we've wrapped up our predictions, um, let's go on to what we're going to be playing this week. So, Andrew, what are you going to be playing apart from Octopath Traveler? There's a new game out this week which combines two of my favorite things, which is twin stick shooting and mm-hmm. point defense, which is okay. it's, it's called Sleep Tight, where you play as a child who is fending off monsters in their room every night when they go to bed, and you build forts out of your bed and out of sheets and things, and like their guns are like Nerf guns and squirt guns and things like that. It looks like a it looks like a lot of fun. I'm I'm really into it. It's a fun idea. It's portrayed in a fun way, and it's just fun. I'm really into this idea. I really hope it's good. Yeah, no, that that actually does sound really interesting. I think I'll probably just be still playing um, Octopath Traveler and probably trying to finish off the cursed game that is Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. (laughs) And by finish off, I mean getting all the extra levels. As to why the game is cursed, if you follow me on Twitter, you know I have an unending well of hatred in my body for Captain Toad. But that's beside the point. I will be working very hard on finishing that game and getting out of my system and on delivering more Octopath hot takes, hopefully the next time that we chat to each other. So that will be me pretty occupied. And I'm sure Andy will fill us in on how his weekend trip went the next time we all hear from him. And he'll probably have some Switch stuff to share with us as well. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of Switchworkers Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, as usual, please leave us a review on iTunes if you can, because it really actually helps to get us noticed on the charts. And you can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, and other mainstream podcast services. We are right there. And if you want to, um, no pressure, but we are a pretty cool group, you can join our Discord server to interact with the lively Switch Focus community and obviously with us, your hosts. So we'll leave a link for you in the show notes as well to help facilitate that. And if you're more of a traditional media fan, you can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and at switchfocuspodcast.com for updates, news, and other content. We might have some cheeky interviews coming your way soon. If you want to support the show, you can also buy us a coffee and we'll leave the details for that on our website. And thanks for listening. If you want to follow us individually, Andy is at Flame Roast Toast. Go at him and say, come back to the show, Andy. We miss you. Andrew is at Play Critically and he also streams at twitch.tv slash playcritically. I know he's working on doing um, first hour captures of a lot of the games that we've talked about recently. So keep your eye out for that on the YouTube channel. And I am Ginny at Ginny Woes. Thanks again. Good night.
Hi everybody, um, welcome to episode one of the Switch Focus podcast. Episode one? Uh, with me this... Oh, episode one? Did I say episode one? You said one? episode one. Ah! Okay, sorry. Huh. 